Creekside. I am excited this morning to share with you a little bit about um, our upcoming Haiti mission trip. Some of you may know that I have been helping to organize the team this year and our trip. Bob Vaughn has asked for some help in organizing the team this year, so I volunteered and I'm helping Bob. So in the process of planning for the trip, I've learned some things about Haiti, uh, some things about Promise for Haiti, and I just wanted to share those things with you and also share a little bit about our upcoming fundraisers. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The average income is $480 a year, with 80% of the nationals living below the poverty line. Only 60% of the nationals can read or write. Housing, sanitation, and clean water supply are major challenges for the Haitian people. However, there are many organizations on the ground helping them, and one of them is Promise for Haiti. And Promise for Haiti is the organization that we partner with when we travel to Haiti. And I just want to tell you a little bit about um, Promise for Haiti and what they do. The, the story of the start of Promise for Haiti is compelling. I don't have time to tell you that. But what Promise for Haiti does in Haiti right now, they have established a modern 65-bed hospital. And I can't pronounce that name, and I'm going to have to learn how to pronounce it when I go down there. But uh, that it, they have a prosthetics clinic, vision and dental clinic. They have a community outreach. And so um, the hospital serves the people, and I'm, I have to mention that it's in the Pinon area. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, that's where they serve. They also provide education. They support and operate nine Christian schools where over 2,000 students are enrolled, and they provide a feeding program and scholarships for students attending schools. Most uh, families in Haiti cannot afford to send their children to school. The government requires them to purchase their own uniforms, their books, their shoes, uh, and tuition. And so most families in Haiti cannot afford to send their children to school. And so Promise for Haiti uh, plays a significant role in helping over 2,000, I think, is, uh, students in the Pinon area. Safe water and hygiene, they also maintain over 2,000 wells in and around Pinon. It's hard to find clean water. It's important for bathing and hygiene. And if you don't have clean water, you have uh, transmit bacterial infections, which cause diarrhea and vomiting. And so clean water is very important. And they maintain over 2,000 wells in Haiti, and, or in Pinon area. And then they also own and operate an 85-acre farmstead that helps promote some economic development and helps provide some jobs for some of the people in the Pinon area. So in October, Lord willing, we have close to 15 to 16 uh, people who will be traveling to Pinyon um, in October. I'm excited to say that the Keppel family will be joining us this year, as will Courtney uh, Westfall. Teo would like to join us. And then we have some nurses going along this year. So in my um, planning for this trip, I inquired if they needed any nurses to come down, since I'm a nurse in the neonatal intensive care unit, to help down there. And they said that, well, we're adding a NICU unit to the hospital and we need uh, nurses to come down and train and teach our nurses. And I'm like, really? Haiti <laughs> Haiti has never been on my radar. I've never wanted to go to Haiti. It was always Norb's thing. And I'm like, um, maybe I'm supposed to go this year. How, how much clearer of a calling could that be? So I was like, OK, I'll think about it. But I'll only go if some of my friends will go with me from that work uh, that I work with in the NICU unit. So they are. I have three um, NICU nurses joining me this year. Uh, one of them, uh, you know, uh, Renee Caramonti, some of you know Renee, um, she'll be joining us this year. So four of us will be going down to train and teach the nurses and maybe some doctors down there in NICU care. So we're excited about that. So I just want to share um, all these things with you just so that you can be informed of the tremendous work that we have a privilege to partner in down there in Haiti through uh, Promise for Haiti. And um, we're excited as a missions team to be going down there and as a church to be sharing God's love to the poorest of the poor in Kenyan area. And the entire team will be really grateful for your support by participating in several upcoming fundraisers. The first one, as you heard, is this Saturday. This Saturday we'll be having a cook-off, so we'd just like everyone to come out. There'll be a free will offering, lots of good food, prizes. We could use a few more people to enter entries for the cook-off. And uh, we just would appreciate everyone's support for coming out for that event. And then funds raised during these events will help us with supplies for building, for VBS supplies for the kids in the schools, and other needs that arise while we are in Haiti. And we'd like to also be able to raise enough funds that we could provide um, partial, maybe scholarships for people who would like to come but don't have the funds to be able to, to do that. So the other couple fundraisers we'll be having besides this Saturday 
Sunday School Kids will be selling pizza kits and uh, coming up in June sometime, and so we appreciate your support. Just buy a pizza kit, even if you don't like pizza, buy a pizza kit, give it to your neighbor, but help us support that effort. And then Perk Up Cafe will again be doing a fundraiser this summer sometime where they'll donate up their proceeds uh, that they earn for the week to our mission team. There's also a loose change jar at the Welcome Center, so I encourage you to empty your pockets and put that loose change in there. It's amazing how much money you can collect just in collecting money in a jar. So thank you. We all um, really appreciate your prayers and your support for our team. Today is the last day to sign up, so please sign up if you have a dish. We need some men. Are there any men cooks to uh, make a dish for us for this Saturday? It would be great to have some men cooks. <laughs> um, you want to go back to that last slide just real quick? I just wanted to show you a hospital is down there on the right. That's the hospital that we'll be working in. A typical home in Haiti is the one that you see on the bottom of the screen. And then I believe um, Olivet has built that home on the left. So the home on the right you can just see how poor living conditions that is. The school up on the right is a temporary school that the parents have built for their children because the school on the left was torn down to make room for a much needed road in the area. So the kids are temporarily meeting in the outdoors and in, in the elements. It's not a great situation, so we hope to be participating in that, um, helping them build that new school. And then Bob Bond is in the hospital on the left um, praying for a newborn baby. So thank you. We appreciate your support for our fundraisers coming up. And thank you. Thanks, Karen. Um, you might remember a couple weeks back, we got to hear a little video testimony from Jody Nicolette. This week, we're going to hear from Jake and Katie Markward. Really, the idea behind these videos is just to to share what some people are, are learning, how God is using circumstances and other events in, in some of our own families, church families' lives to, to teach faith and uh, reliance on him. So if you guys got that ready to go, then uh, you guys can roll it. Jake enlisted in the Army as an infantryman in September of 2008, four months after we were married. Our first duty station was overseas in Germany. After being there for a short time, he was selected for and sent to sniper school. And shortly after returning, he was selected and transferred to a reconnaissance platoon. Recon platoons focus on executing specialized missions and gathering intelligence on the enemy so that they can provide information to and support the overall mission of the company. I was very proud of him, but at the same time, I knew that that would place him in more risky positions. Praise God, Lorelai was born two weeks early, so Jake got to spend a couple weeks with her before deploying. In the weeks leading up to the deployment, a friend had sent me the book Psalm 91. By the time I had finished reading it, I had committed to praying Psalm 91 over Jake and his sniper team daily. Jake deployed to Afghanistan as part of Operation Enduring Freedom, OEF, in June of 2010. I knew this year would either be a year filled with prayer or a year filled with worry. I chose prayer. This was my first experience directly praying God's word over somebody. I prayed it daily and whenever I felt feelings of fear trying to creep in. It wasn't long into the deployment when the notification email started. Anytime a soldier was killed, wounded to the point of needing to leave Afghanistan, or killed themselves, an email was sent to all the spouses to notify us of the regiment's loss. The constant not knowing was really hard. I never knew specifically where Jake was, when he was on a mission, or when I would hear from him again. I had complete confidence in God's ability to bring Jake home, but I also knew that it might not be part of his sovereign will. Eventually, his year-long deployment came to an end, and his homecoming is one of the happiest days of my life. When men and women return from war, they don't often like to talk about it. War is horrific, and they tend to want to keep it separate from their families. So it wasn't for several months. I think almost six months until I knew the full extent of God's protection over Jake. Jake's platoon of 25 guys had four strikers that they traveled in. A striker is an armored vehicle similar to a tank, but it has better mobility because it has wheels instead of tracks. Over the course of the deployment, all four of the strikers were blown up by IEDs. IEDs are bombs that can come in many forms and they're capable of causing massive damage. All four strikers were completely disabled and useless from the IED blasts. There were injuries but no fatalities within the platoon, praise God. When Jake's striker was blown up by an IED, he wasn't in it. He was home on his two-week R&R, which is a leave soldiers get partway through their deployment. Psalm 91 says, A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. No evil will befall you, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. 
I was in awe by how completely and totally God protected Jake from those IED blasts. There were definitely struggles and hard times. When Jake came home, he came home to a one-year-old who didn't really know him. Most of you have met my children as babies and wouldn't describe them as friendly, and that was really hard for him. He has chronic hip, knee, and back pain from injuries during his time in the military and physical pain is just a daily reality for him. One of the biggest takeaways that the Lord was so gracious to teach me during that year is from Luke chapter 12. When talking to his disciples, Jesus says, do not worry, consider. It was a daily and sometimes hourly choice to fix my mind on and consider what a great and mighty God I serve. I had to choose to consider his character, his words, and previous provisions and blessings he had poured out on our family. Choosing to consider instead of worry allowed me through the power of Christ to experience contentment in my circumstances and the peace of God that surpasses understanding. My greatest source of comfort and strength that year came from being in the Word and spending time daily in prayer. There's just no replacement for that. Knowing scripture is invaluable. Knowing the Word of God is what allowed me to combat fear whenever it gripped my heart. It was definitely a hard year but a very blessed one. I think our past trials and struggles should serve as a point of hope for us. Jake and I frequently look back at what we went through during his deployment and talk about and meditate on how God saw us through that and it serves as a, as a beacon of hope for us. We can look back and say, well, if God can see us through that, we know he will see us through whatever our current trial is. Whatever trial you may be experiencing, he sees, he is present, he is faithful, he walks with you through it, and you should take comfort in knowing that his provisions and his protection and his blessings run far deeper and are far more extensive than we will ever know. I invite you to pray with me if you would, Father. It's one thing to know your word and to know your truth. It's quite another thing to live it and to apply it. And I thank you for uh, the way in which you supernaturally intervene and encourage and strengthen and sustain. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your goodness, even in the tough times. And I pray now as we open your word that you would Encourage us, not just from the modern-day testimonies of your faithfulness, but from the testimonies of the ancients who walked the path before us. May you use these examples to steal us for the challenges that we may be facing right now, or the ones that we certainly will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, Motivation to Last a Lifetime, Ted Engstrom tells this story. It was evening and the ship was holding a grand gala celebration because something had happened earlier in the day. The captain and some of the other passengers were sharing their speeches. At the front table, head table, sat a 70-year-old man who was kind of embarrassed, but trying to accept the accolades and the praises that were being poured upon him as graciously as he could. Earlier that day, a young woman had fallen overboard, and within seconds, this 70-year-old man found himself in the deep, dark, cold waters next to her, and she was rescued, and they were brought out of the water, and he was a hero. As it came time for the hero uh, to give his speech, he approached the podium and took the microphone and everybody was waiting with bated breath and he gave what was probably the shortest hero's speech ever given. He came to the microphone and this is what he said, I'd just like to know one thing, who pushed me? You see... Courage is not some external force that is thrust upon us. Courage arises from convictions deep within our soul. And for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, the courage 
that comes from our soul is the courage that God alone can give us. It's the courage that comes from His work. And courage in our lives is the ultimate litmus test of our faith in our Savior. It's the ultimate litmus test of whether we're going to trust in Him or not. And it's hard. You know, it's, it's not really hard uh, to follow God and to uh, live for God when things are going well. But when things are hard and when life is difficult, then we know whether or not this faith that we profess is really, really it. Authentic faith manifests itself in, in feats of courage in the face of human difficulty, death, disease, discouragement. It manifests itself in the face of adversity, spiritual adversity, when there's ridicule, when there's rejection, when there's persecution. And as believers, we're going to experience both of those things, real human difficulty and real spiritual adversity. And so this morning we close our study in the chapter on the heroes of the faith by looking at a long list of several heroes of the faith who provide us with an example, actually three examples, three feats of faith that authentic, that mark those with authentic faith, that courageously live with a view towards eternity, the view towards pleasing God, with a view towards preserving our souls. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at this passage. I'm going to read verses 30 through 40, and then we'll unpack what these three feats of authentic faith that mark those who courageously face adversity with a view towards eternity look like, what they are. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they, were, they went about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What are the marks of those who courageously face adversity with a view towards eternity, want to please God, want to preserve our souls? Well, first of all, we, by faith we enjoy victory when we struggle. In verses 30 through 35, the question before the, the struggling and immature Jewish believers to whom the author writes is the same challenge that all of us face when we want to know whether our Christian life, whether we should continue and really believe and act in faith or whether we should just give up and abandon it. What should they do? Should we exercise faith or abandon it? So he gives us several examples, several examples of faith-based courage that are intended to incentivize us, to encourage us to follow suit. We see, first of all, he talks about, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Well, the children of Israel wandered around for 40 years, faithless, in the wilderness. And then they crossed the Jordan River only to 
find Jericho, this well-fortified city, armed with all sorts of well-trained people. And they had all kinds of ammunition and munitions that they needed. Now, when I say this, you have to understand, contextually, uh, this is not the kind of ammunition we had. But they were armed to the teeth. God told Gideon, be strong and courageous. And then he unveiled the most unorthodox military strategy you could ever imagine. Here's the deal, Gideon, or I mean uh, Joshua. Here's what you want you to do. I want you to take your troops and put them in front and then put the priests behind them and then the people. And here's what you get to do. You get to march around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, you march around the city seven times. At the end of the seven times, you blow the trumpets and everybody shouts. And guess what happens? The walls come tumbling down. Seriously. None of these guys went to West Point. The, the military strategy was comical. I mean, their physical demands were pretty much minimal. But their faith-based obedience that led to the victory was monumental. They did exactly what God asked them to do. As ludicrous as it sounds... They did exactly what God asked them to do, and God delivered them. When God's people follow God's word and God does God's work, then God gets the glory. I thought about, I'll call her Helen. God directed Helen, who was a, a young believer, a recent convert to Christianity, who had been physically abused as a child. And God directed her to go to the perpetrator, someone that she knew very, very well, and to declare that she had forgiven that person for the sins and offenses against her. And she went. She came back and she says, It's just such a weight lifted from me. She was free. She'd followed God's footsteps and God's plan and what God called her to do. She faced the walls of Jericho, if you will, and she tore them down by her faith. Because she did what God asked her to do. And I wonder, some of you here are facing some pretty formidable walls and barriers, obstacles. And maybe it's somebody who's a really belligerent coworker or an obnoxious boss. Maybe it's just somebody in your family that gives you grief. Maybe it's somebody in your class that doesn't want to leave you alone. Maybe it's just an internal battle with depression or insecurity. God helps us face those kinds of things, just like God helped Katie get through a year of her husband's deployment. And I can't even imagine what it would be like every single day waiting for an email or a phone call that you are terrified is coming. You choose to trust. Choose to consider. Secondly, the text points us to Rahab. Now notice the text is very specific. By faith, verse 31, Rahab the harlot... Why we being so specific here? It's intentional. One and only person that this brings to mind is Rahab, the woman who, by the grace of God, who had no special revelation from God, believed that the God of Israel was truly God and that his people would take over Jericho, and so she welcomed the spies and protected them in faith. She did it. It's an amazing story. The others were disobedient. They had the same amount of spiritual light that she did, only they rejected it and they died, and she didn't. I guess this little phrase kind of sticks in my craw because it speaks very specifically 
to me, and I think it speaks to a lot of us, because Rahab the harlot, this prostitute who was a foreigner, I get that, there's two strikes against her. She was not of Jewish origin. She reveals the depth of God's grace. The depth of God's grace in saving the worst of the offenders. The worst kind of people. So that none of us, no one ever could say, I am never able to be rescued. Doesn't matter what your story is. Doesn't matter what the past holds. This woman stands as a testimony that God rescues the worst and saves the worst. And it's such an encouragement to me. Nobody can say that he can't rescue you. He can rescue us from marital unfaithfulness. He can rescue us from parental dereliction. He can rescue us from drug and alcohol and pornographic addiction. God is able to rescue us from the guilt of abortion, from our greed, from our pride, from our jealousy, from our selfishness. Whenever sin plagues us, whatever sin plagues us, he's able to rescue us. He's able to deliver us. She's the testimony. And then she testifies not only to the depth of God's mercy or grace, but the breadth of his mercy, because she's a foreigner. And God's salvation comes to all people from every nation. I thought of the, the song, the words to the song. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness is found in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Father's arms are open wide. And there is nothing you have ever done that can separate you from the love of God. He wants you to turn from your sin and to trust in His Son, Jesus, and His death on the cross. And He will welcome you into His family. And Rahab stands as a testimony. This woman was saved physically. She was redeemed spiritually. And she was blessed extraordinarily. She's the great-great-grandmother of David. She's in the direct lineage of her Savior, the Messiah. You read Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> there she is. It's like, whoa, what's she doing there? Bathsheba's there too. It's amazing what God does. God will rescue you as well. And then, so he goes on, he goes, man, I could talk to you about uh, several other people. And he says, I don't have time to talk to you about all these other people. A detailed look is not within the scope of my intention here. Now, that's my abbreviation for what he goes on to say in uh, verse 32. And what more shall I say for time will... So what does he do? He gives us a random list of people that illustrate God's faithful people over the course of centuries. And he just lists them there in some random order. Six guys and then the prophets. He talks about Gideon. And many of you know the story of Gideon, but I think it's interesting. He had 32,000 and he was supposed to pare them down. Another military genius effort. Well, just, just go against the Midianites with 300. And here's what we're going to do, boys. We're going to take some clay jars. We're going to take some torches and some trumpets. And we're going to whoop them. 300 of us against them. We're going to blow the trumpets, smash the jars, and wave our torches, and they're going to melt. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's like, I, I, you know, I like war movies because it fascinates me how you could face battle, because I'm a coward. And I just think, how would you do that? And so here you are. Well, I got my torch, and I, I got my clay jar, and I have my trumpet. Now I feel safe. No, I don't. The confidence was in the credibility of God and the authority of God's word, not in their military might. They didn't trust in their 
right? And I think, so how foolish is it for us when God commands and God calls and God equips if we don't go? Karen Metzler. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He calls, he equips, and he says, go, and then we go. That's what he, that's what he calls it. Then there's Barak. Now, Barak is the guy, who's, uh, he was a coward, so he, he said, I'm not going to go. So Deborah says, okay, I'm going to go. Deborah told him, God is going to use you to rescue uh, his people from the, the, the Canaanites. Yeah. So Barak has 10,000 soldiers, which sounds like a lot, right? Well, it is a lot, but 10,000. And Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, has 900 chariots. Now, this is like uh, 900 M1 tanks, you know, I mean, this is a mechanized army, 900 of them, and then he has a multitude of troops, and they go down into the valley where the tanks, i.e. the chariots, are going to be most effective, because if you're up on the mountains, a chariot's worthless, but if you're down in the valley, a chariot is lethal, and here's what we read in Judges chapter 4, verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, and all his army. It wasn't military might that won the fight. It was the mighty God who won the fight. Barak counted on the promises of God, on the power of God, on the plan of God, and not on his own abilities. And then there's Samson, and I know, you know, we, some of you know about Samson's story, and we'd rather talk about all of the failures of Samson, but in the end, he is commended and not condemned here as a man of faith, and particularly at the end of his life when he's standing there, his eyes have been gouged out, and he just says, God, give me strength one more time, and in one more time, the last time that he had strength, he pulled or pushed, I can't remember which, uh, you know, he forced himself against the pillars that held up the entire people who were parading and watching him, and he killed more in his death than he killed in his life, because of his trust his faith in God. And then we have Jephthah, which is a real conundrum. Most of us people, if we know about Jephthah, we know that he made a pledge that the first thing that came out of his tent when he got back, he would sacrifice to the Lord, and that was his only daughter. It's like, what a drip. You know, why would you do that? I mean, I mean who makes that kind of a pledge anyway? But he kept his vow, and so we, we dismiss him, but here he's held up as someone of faith. And he liberated Israel from the Ammonites. And then there's David. And David, he cut his teeth in faith when he fought a bear and a lion. He went to graduate school against Goliath and demonstrated his faith there. You see, I come in the name of the Lord our God. And here's the thing about David in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's not so much, it is a story of faith, but it's more about the guy's heart. He, he cared about honoring God. It was about God. And he stepped out in faith. And then he talks about Samuel and the prophets. Now these dudes aren't fighting military battles, but they're fighting against spiritual indifference and immorality and idolatry. The faithful that are listed and those whom they represent, because they just represent all the faithful of all times, they trusted in the promises of God and the power of God and the plan of God and the person of God. And they enjoyed the kind of victories that are mentioned there. Now, if we look at verse 33, this is the victories who by faith, all these people who by faith, and not only them, but others like them, they conquered kingdoms. Now, I think of the judges, and I think of David, and other of the kings that are mentioned in the Old Testament. They conquered kingdoms. And then there's Samuel and David who performed acts of righteousness, or your version may say they ruled justly. That's, that's them. And they obtained promises. I think of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the, the Davidic covenant. Through him, one of his descendants would sit on the throne of David forever. Who shut the mouths of lions? Daniel. Daniel. But there's others who figuratively shut the mouths of lions. David and Samson and Benaiah, other people in the Old Testament, and maybe others that we don't know of. Some quenched the power of fire. Who are those guys? Yeah, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, and Daniel chapter 3. And others, David and Elijah and Elisha, escaped 
the edge of the sword, and we could go down through all of these things. Samson and David and others were from weakness made strong and became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. And then you have Elijah and Elisha. It says there in, uh, over here in, in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. What's that talking about? Well, you can go back in the Old Testament in Elijah, and there was this widow of Zarephath, and her son died, and Elijah raised her from the dead. And then there's Elisha and the Shunammite woman's son, and she was raised from the dead. And God is marking all these out. And then I ask myself, so why all these examples? You say, well, I don't know why you did it. I mean, uh, the writer of Hebrews didn't take time to explain them all, but you just did. Well, briefly... But why the examples? Authentic faith courageously acts in obedience and allegiance to God and His Word. In the face of this kind of adversity, confident that God is going to bring the victory no matter the foe. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Bob was talking? He said, faith fears no foe, but pursues the unseen prize. They didn't fear any foe. Folks, whatever foe we face, it may be a personal enemy. You may have enemies that just don't like you. It may be political opposition to our faith. That's a little bit more down the road there. But there may be other enemies or battles that we, we face. It may be that we face physical debilitation or illness. Maybe we're facing death. Maybe it's our own spiritual apathy. Maybe it's our insecurity, our indifference, or our inadequacy. Is anything too difficult? There's no battle that we face that's too difficult for God. Remember Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Abraham is told that Sarah's going to have a baby. You know, he laughs in chapter 17, and then she laughs in chapter 18. And God says, is anything too difficult for me? I thought as I was preparing about Lucas and Lois Richard. You know, they live in a culture that is completely contrary to who... I mean, look at the picture of them, you know, in the missionary things. <laughs> I mean, they don't belong there in, in the worldly sense. It's a cultural barrier. There are religious walls up against them. Every day they fight the good fight of faith with challenges that you and I don't know anything about, just to live life. And with meager resources. And praise God that we were able to raise $3,300 to send them, to help them. That, that's, that's great. But I think about, they're, they're, and they're experiencing some sense of victory in the midst of all this opposition. By faith, God can. And this is the thing that challenges me. That by faith, God can. He can provide sanity and success for all the single parents in the world. By faith, God can open the womb of someone who has been declared barren. By faith, God can keep you and me honest when we work for a company that is notoriously dishonest. By faith, God can provide us with a job. Whereas a single person, God can provide us with a spouse. God is able to heal our diseases. He's able to overcome our loneliness. God is able to forgive my worst offense. To defeat my greatest fears. By faith, he can enable a deeper intimacy in my relationships, my marriage. He can overcome the loneliness he can find, help me find purpose as a single person, meaning in life. He can help me love my enemies and, and, and share Christ with the people around me. By faith, God is able to do these things. Now, there's no guarantee. This is a list of people who, by faith, experienced some victory. They enjoyed victory in the face of their struggle. But there's a shift in the text. If you look at the middle of verse 35, it moves to the second feet of faith, which is by faith we endure agony when we suffer. Verse 35, it says, and others 
And then it repeats that in the beginning of verse 36, and others. Now what's he talking about? He's moving from the positive examples, those who experienced the blessings and the victory, now to those who experienced the torture and the struggles. And these are not just any kind of struggles. These are adversities because they name and relate themselves with the God of the universe, the true one true God. Because they stand up for Christ. They didn't. They stood up for God, looking forward to Christ, but we stand up for Christ. And there are examples of agony that's been experienced by believers all over. Tortured, it says. Verse 35. Others were tortured. Do you know we get the word timpani? Some of you musicians will know what timpani is. Or a kettle drum. You know what a kettle drum is? You see, what they did was they would draw and quarter these people and drag them over stakes, and then they would beat them so that they would be drawn like the skin of a drum over the the, the structure of the drum and then beaten to death. They were scalped. They were mutilated because of their faith, because of who they are. Unwilling, it says in the text, Notice in verse 35, they were tortured, not accepting their release. In other words, they wouldn't abandon their faith. They wouldn't renounce their faith. They would experience the torture because they looked for a better resurrection. They wouldn't compromise. They wouldn't sell out. They wouldn't gain immediate reprieve and sacrifice ultimate reward. They were mocked and scourged and imprisoned. You know, I... Joseph was in prison in Genesis 39. And the prophets Micaiah and Jeremiah, they were imprisoned. Zechariah was stoned. The text talks about someone being stoned. Isaiah is said to have been sawn in two. The text talks about people being sawn in two and put to death by the sword. The priests of Nob back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, we could talk about them. Then the Elijah and Elisha and many others, it says the text, they, they were tempted and they wear, wore sheepskins and goatskins and they wandered around and lived in caves. It's not a very glamorous lifestyle. They were treated like vermin, not humans, because of their faith. They endured the worst the world had to offer to gain the best that God had to offer. And you know what, folks? If we are in Christ Jesus, we are guaranteed that we will suffer. Persecution now. This is, we're going to struggle with the adversities of life. That's the first section. But this is specifically that we're going to be persecuted. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you in John 15. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, I don't know if we have that text. I think we do. But it says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't really like that. But that's the promise, that we will be persecuted. It was true for Jesus. It was true for Paul. It was true for Stephen. It was true for John Wycliffe. It was true for John Huss. It was true for John Calvin. It was true for Martin Luther. It was true and is true for Punam, who's a believing woman whose husband unbelieving husband, tore up her Bible and cast her out of her home where her three children and her husband live because of her faith. It was true a week ago when several hundred people were gathered in churches in Sri Lanka and they were bombed and many were killed and many were injured because of their faith. It's going to happen to others. It was true in a small Midwest town where a young pastor was going to school and he was talking to the students during the lunch hour about Jesus. And the school board decided, the community decided that that wasn't acceptable, that he was having too much of a good influence, I guess, but he was banned from the school against the school's policy, but he suffered and was maligned and was ill-treated and mocked, and we will be too, like those in Sri Lanka maybe, I hope not, but it could happen, or like him. So why the suffering? The Bible tells us there are several reasons for suffering. One of those reasons for believers to suffer is because it strengthens our faith. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, And we exult in our tribulation. 
Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope makes not a shame because the, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Persecution deepens our faith. Persecution also testifies to the world the reality of Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 and following, where we manifest in our lives the, the body of Jesus. We testify and we give glory to God. We endure only by faith. And our confidence is in the unseen power and presence and purposes and plan of God. And notice the text describes these people in verse 38, men of whom the world was not worthy. That's the paradox of being a believer. First John uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 17. Uh, we have that? Yeah, there it is. And the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Then you go on to chapter 5, verse 4. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. In this world we suffer and struggle, but in the end we gain the victory, which leads finally to the final feat of faith, which is really not so much a feat of us, but it is by faith we enter glory through the Savior. The writer brings the chapter to a conclusion. And there are two conclusions here. Look at verse 39, and all these, those mentioned above, and all, that they re- all those they represent, gained approval through their faith. Now look back at chapter 2, if you have your Bibles open. For it is by faith, by, for by it, faith, the men of old gained approval. You see, faith enables us to endure, and our endurance by faith evidences that we truly have faith, that our Faithful living is evidence of a living faith. And a living faith is what pleases God. And what pleases God preserves our souls. These, the succession of these people, so that everything in 3 through 38 is just an illustration of faith gains the approval of God and pleases God. The feats of faith that include conquering the enemies and the battles, and continuing when the fight is tough. When what is promised is not realized, notice verse 39, it says they gained approval through their faith and they did not receive what was promised. The full realization of their salvation wasn't theirs yet in the Old Testament. There are examples of living faith. Because it's only through faith in Christ that all believers are complete. That's verse 40. Why is it that the believers in the Old Testament didn't fully receive the promise? He says in verse 40, because God had provided something better for us. The something better is the high priestly work of Christ. So that the work of Christ accomplished Fully and finally, the salvation that they were promised, that we've been promised, so they look forward in faith towards what Christ would do, believing that they would then fully realize the salvation that was theirs in Him, which they only vaguely understood. We look back in faith. So that neither one of us is complete without the other. Which is an interesting thing as we lead into chapter 12. Because they aren't complete without us, and we're not complete without them. But together, we are complete in Christ, and we look forward in faith to that day when we will be all together. So if you're here this morning, and you're saying, I don't know about this stuff. It sounds kind of weird. You know, you have to suffer for Jesus. Well, let me tell you what. The Bible never says that Christians would not suffer. That's a misnomer. That's a a mistake. Christianity never exempts the followers from adversity. The difference is it enables us to endure it. It enables us to fight through it with confidence of eternal victory. That's not ignorant faith. That's informed faith. In light of all that God has promised, only Christianity provides real hope and real help because they have the real answer in the person and the work of Jesus. Only through Him and only Him will we be able to to overcome ultimately and eventually. Believers, I don't know about you, but these uh, serve as examples for me. 
Faith is tenacious trust. And think about Katie's testimony. Tenacious trust. Tenacious trust. In the promise of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, and ultimately in the person of God that liberates you and me to respond whatever the situation in life we face, confident that God is in it and we can keep on going. Faithful living proceeds from a living faith. And that alone, only living faith enables us to persevere. Only living faith pleases God. Only living faith preserves our souls. And so as we come to take this bread and break it and drink this cup, they symbolize the priestly work of Christ that actually accomplished the promises that have been given to them in the Old Testament and the promises that have been given to us. Because only in Christ that we're really saved. His body is broken and his blood shed so that all who believe may have eternal life which begins the moment we believe and continues on after that for all eternity. And Christ's sacrifice is the something better. They just looked vaguely into the future and we have the something better. It's actually been provided for us. It motivates our faithfulness. Because whether we experience immediate victory or not, we ultimately will stand victorious with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, oh, give us grace and strength and courage beyond our abilities, Father, to follow you, to pursue you, to be faithful to you. I pray that if there are any here who don't know Jesus, that they would understand that following Christ is not an absence of difficulty or hardship, either from the difficulties of the human condition or the adversity of people opposed to us. But Lord, help us to realize as believers, we face both the challenges of this life and the hostility of the world against the Savior that we claim. And I pray that you'd help each of us to press ahead with courage, with authentic faith. In Jesus' name.